You need to understand is you can't just plug oil wells and close them down and shut them down. It's very expensive, very complicated. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Here, we interview experts and leaders participating in this great energy transition of a zero carbon future by 2050. We engage in topics that shed light on the current state of the world, but we also consider longer term trends that affect how and when we build a sustainable and equitable energy system. You can contact us with feedback or suggestions by Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on the MyEnergy2050 LinkedIn profile. Please follow us on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit, please share it on social media. Today's podcast guest is David Mihai. He is a senior economic analyst at Natural Resource Governance Institute in the USA. He is also a visiting research fellow at the Central European University School of Public Policy. In today's episode, we discuss the impact of oil markets and the fall in oil prices on developing countries. We look at how government revenues fund the state, and David helps us understand how these oil-rich countries are responding after having their budget decimated by the fall in oil prices. We also get into the topic of the pre-course or pre-source curse, which countries get into after the discovery of oil, but before they extract it. And the situation is not good. Rather, they begin to act like oil-rich nations, but without the natural resources to fund their lavish spending. It's a truly interesting story. And just a note for today's episode, this was recorded as an online event for CU's Energy Policy Research Group and part of the activities of the John Monet in Energy and Innovation Strategies, which I'm a holder of. Uh, David, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast and the, uh, the forum we have to here today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Michael. My first question to you is, uh, is not only is the world in this pandemic of COVID-19, but also the oil markets are completely crazy. And I was wondering, maybe you could provide some context for, for the changes, both in the short term and the long term for oil, oil markets. What, what's going on? Sure. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, the oil market has always been a very, a very volatile one, but this, this, this shock is, this is of course clearly unprecedented uh, and it, it really, and very quickly as the, as the pandemic unfolded and, and you know, went, uh, reached beyond China, uh, it became clear that, that the world is completely, you know, upside down and, uh, and then going into lockdown really. And uh, I've got I've got some stats uh, here from the yeah. Could you uh, you get some slides? That'd be great if you should. Basically, when you know, as as the world realized that four billion people are going under lockdown uh, as of April, uh, and completely changing their habits, way less flying, well, ba- barely any flying really, um, and much less travel. Shipping is down, international trade is down, everything. Uh, then you know, uh, there was a realization that there's just going to be too much oil coming out of the ground and you can store oil. There's, there's oil storage facilities uh, around the world, but these were slowly becoming, they were, those were, were filling up very, very quickly. So we reached the point where every, uh, uh, um, every uh, place to store oil was becoming full. 
uh, and then there's still more oil coming out of the ground. And what's in, you know, what need, you need to understand is you can't just plug oil wells and close them down and shut them down. It's very expensive, very complicated uh, to do that thing. So oil needs to be, com- well, keeps coming out. And, and, and it reached to a point where actually in the US there was, there was so much oil that, that the price of oil became negative. Some, some suppliers were willing to pay to just, to just get the oil out of their, their land really. Um, and so, so that was the, but that was, that was a momentary, uh, and I you know, that was, that was, that highlights how, how big the trouble was, but more generally, uh, what we, what forecasters see is that there is, there's an oversupply. There's, there's much more oil being produced than, than how much is needed, at least for this year. And I've got a chart here with estimates on the right hand side, which shows that on average, on a day, on an average day, there's it's about 100 million barrels of oil consumed. And in, in, this, in this quarter, the second quarter of the year, where at least for now, what we understand, the pandemic was, uh, was, was at least peaking. And, you know, this, this might go further or we don't really know the direction of things take. This demand dropped by 20%. And uh, so down to 80, billion, uh, 80 million barrels a day. Uh, and, and what the forecasters say is on, on the year, they, they see uh, the oil demand to be at around 90 uh, million barrels a day. So a 10% drop overall for the year uh, in, on average, which includes months when, you know, when, when, um, which are barely affected and then some months that are more severely affected. But do you, do you so, think uh, now, I mean, basically based on some of these um, projections and you write, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of things, but you write about the IMF being uh, too optimistic. <laughs> so how, how do you, how do you uh, either buy into the, like say the IEA uh, assessments here, or how do you think they're uh, too optimistic or too pessimistic? I, I mean, for that, I think you need to be an epidemiologist first and more than knowing the oil market, right? I think a lot of these estimates rely on the idea that at least some of the largest markets in the world, that's Europe, US, China, India, will get through with the pandemic relatively quickly. And that there's, there's huge questions in that. Will China experience a second wave? Is the US finally starting to go down so i i mean uh and all i know is how these estimates came about uh and then it becomes a speculation on, uh-huh. so when uh, we talk about sorry so when we talk about the oil markets today basically <laughs> it's 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 a reflection of other public policy like health policy impacting the energy the oil market then yes and i think it's clearly a health policy question and then a question as well about and that's even way beyond about what's the appropriate response is full lockdown the right response or are we doing a different type of lockdown measure that might be more energy intensive less energy intensive it's clear that aviation is probably one of the hardest hits and that's going to stay but who knows about you know driving and, and and transport and all and all the rest and 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 manufacturing which might be you know intensive on gas and other stuff so um just to go back to the initial point what we've what what this leads to what this means for sure is that we've seen oil prices that for the last decade have been initially very very high historically unprecedentedly high over over a hundred dollars a barrel they first dropped in 2015 
mainly in response to to the rapid climb up of U.S. production. The shale gas revolution was uh, was one of the main factors in, in driving oil prices down to about about fifty sixty dollars a barrel, uh, which which was seen at the price at which shale can just flood the markets. Really, at, at that kind of price, the U.S. can can just supply and an, a huge amount of oil. And then, you know, when when there was even less demand because of the COVID shock, we saw oil prices go, they went below 20 and, and for a brief moment below zero. But, you know, generally they're they're now around uh, $35 a barrel. That's that's the price right now. So, uh, so sorry, so you're kind of uh, referring to this price band where shale, U.S. shale, uh, is profitable to produce um, at, at a certain price point, basically. Exactly. Uh, and I think the big question, I guess, w- w- that I think about a lot is, is this price shock? Because I, you know, um, just to run a bit ahead, I'm not really an oil markets guy. I'm not buying or selling oil. I'm I'm in the business of helping governments, advising governments on what to do in response to these shocks. And for, for me, the critical question is, is this a permanent shock or is this a temporary shock? Uh-huh. There's a few arguments you can make in favor of this is just a temporary shock. You know, COVID-19 is an ep- every epidemic ends one way or another. Uh, you know, and even, you know, even if we take the worst, worst scenario, at one point, you know, it, it'll be over and, and then, and then, and then containment measures will at, at some point be lifted. So that could mean that oil, oil demand goes back to where it was. That's one. The other thing you can argue is that there, there's been already some supply cuts, although not huge. Uh, that's what they call sh- the industry calls shut-in. It's mainly for the most expensive uh, oil fields that might happen in Canadian oil sands. The U.S. shale is one of those more expensive ones. And then there's been some countries like Venezuela and Iraq that, that have domestic struggles and, and are unable to keep up production the way uh, they, they usually can. Uh, and then there's a bunch of projects that have already been delayed or shelved. So that means that production that was supposed to come online 2022, 2023 might not come online. And then on top of that, there's the OPEC cartel, which which so far, which until now, since uh, for the last 50 years, has controlled oil price quite a bit. What they did really is when they saw demand is, is dropping, then they cut supply. Uh, and that worked really well for a while that worked really well so far because OPEC represented most of the oil producers. And, you know, it was it made it was a sensible decision to say, okay, if demand goes down by 10%, I'm gonna cut supply by 10% and make and let prices go back up. And you know, in the end, you know, uh, uh, my bottom line is is the same or even better. But what happened is that a bunch of producers are not part, especially the US, the biggest one of them is not part of OPEC. Some parts, some OPEC members were on unable for domestic reasons and then pressures to to really uh, do cuts. Um, and so a few big producers had to, to do most of the cut, mainly the Saudis really. Uh, and it was a big struggle on whether the Russians uh, and the Mexican, uh, Mexico will, will also follow up on those cuts. And, you know, if, if one of the players has, has to take most of the cut, then suddenly it's, it's much, it's it's a much more delicate balance whether you know you're willing to cut for everyone else just to let prices rebound somewhat and that seems what the Saudis were reluctant to do 
But so right. so some of these uh, non OPEC members though they're producing so much oil that they can actually influence somewhat the market or play play a, play a role we'll say in the price movement. So Russia, United States, uh, Canada, right? Uh, in the past they they were able to still influence the market, but now it's a case of there's so many players or there's so much oil on the market and the price is so low that there's just by flooding they don't want to flood the market with oil now because uh, it's already below uh, what the companies are producing at in these countries exactly so exactly that's that there's definitely been this change of balance where where the Saudi is really and, and a few uh, countries in the in, um, in the um, uh, Gulf region ha- control most of the supply and that change and it's unclear whether whether what's what's uh, it seems clear that these countries now don't control enough of the supply uh, what's unclear is what what's the whether US producers or others are, are willing to take part in such cuts and 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 uh, and what price? At what price do, do these? Uh, what price sensitivities sensitivities do they have? Um, so, so then you get into the more permanent kind of long term exactly. impact. Exactly. Uh-huh. So the more permanent impacts. Uh, well, there's there's been a lot of uh, arguments put forward about how even if the virus, uh, the the pandemic ends. Some there might be some lasting effects. That's what the Economist famously labeled the 90% economy in one of its recent cover, where everyone does a little bit less air travel. Everyone's a bit more uh, conscientious about uh, how it's used its fuel, how much imports, uh, trade. There might be trade restrictions that that stay, uh, fallouts, uh, supply chains that were disrupted just don't, you know, are are they. They just change suppliers basically for something more regional, something closer. Uh, so that's that's definitely something to watch. The the other one is the idea that that you were explaining that some of these U.S. producers, the shale producers, are are here to stay and and they they can they can ramp up production. If if oil prices were to go much beyond fifty dollars, then there's a lot of shale producers that could come back online and produce a ton more. Uh, and then there's the shift to renewables, uh, which, which solar, offshore wind, they're becoming very, very competitive. Uh, in, in a lot of countries, they're now at parity with oil. Well, at oil at 50, it's unclear you know, how. And it's, a, it's an unclear race now in which countries are renewable, completely able to take over. Uh, the price of oil, but if you know if oil prices were to rebound, then then renewables would would get in a, a would definitely become uh, uh, the more competitive alternative in a bunch of but markets. But do you, do you think it's harder with a low um, and even and I would say maybe move this to the developing country context uh, of it's harder with a low oil price or maybe even easier with a low oil price to shift certain countries to embrace more renewable energy rather than rely on oil and oil revenue uh, for, for I don't know, subsidizing or paying for their energy needs? I, it's, it's, it's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'd say on the whole, it's a very, very tough thing to get a country that's completely running on fuel to switch that. And 
some countries have already made head starts on that and some barely, barely did anything. So where there is already an industry, there you might hope that, uh, that the crisis generates, well, that, you know, there you might, you might already have installations, you might, you might have already plans and, and maybe, maybe the oil shop is one of those realizations when they say, okay, we, we can't just rely on fossil fuel, we need, we need, altern- we need to diversify it further. In other places where, where there wasn't any, any headwind already, uh, and oil is, 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 is basically free, you know, there was, there was a, uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a very hard proposition, especially on consumers to say, why would I pay, why would I import some really expensive renewable equipment when fuel's free? And there, I think we're going to, I don't want to rush ahead too much, but like, the, the impacts on government budgets, right? The oil is cheap in oil producing countries, mainly because it's subsidized. It's way below 40, I'm saying, um, you, know, you know, oil prices are now 35, whatever, they might be down to 40, but it's literally free, nearly free in, uh, in, in, in a lot of the oil producing countries. And, and the question of these oil subsidies basically is, is, is a big question. And, and if some, in a, what we see is that there's a lot of these countries where well, oil was free are now in huge budget crisis because, because their oil revenue fell. So even in Venezuela, they now restricted and said, okay, from, from now on, you're only allowed one, one to fill up your car once for free. And it's the end of free oil and you can, where they're gonna start charging. For, for <laughs> you can free. only fill it up once for free. A month, I think. That's, That's the, crazy. The Wait, could, they could fill it up before? Yeah, it was free. Free? It was free? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, and so, um, so yeah. So, and, um, you know, in, in a bunch of, uh, you know, Nigeria to Iraq to uh, Iran, these, these countries, Iran actually has, has gone ahead and in already in a few years ago started started to implement uh, big, big reforms on on pricing fuel, but it's very sensitive uh, because because you know fuel subsidies is one of the few perks that the poor get or feel that they they're directly getting from the oil. So even the successful Iranian reforms were done by changing that to cash transfers to say okay we're going to charge for fuel but you're going to but the poor households are going to get cash transfers instead. Anyways, um, so so this can. Yeah, sorry. Uh, go on. Uh, the short-term yeah. revenue. Yeah, that exactly. was my so, question. Exactly. Uh, so I wanted to unpack a little bit about this budget crisis side because I think your question, what's what? How is this impacting the energy sector? I think before you can get to the energy sector, you need to understand how the government finances are, are and and the whole country's economy are impacted. And these are countries that are primarily oil oil fuel um, or more or at least oil is, is, is their largest sector. Uh, and, and what you see is these oil, price, uh, oil revenues are collapsing. They're, they're down by half. Uh, and, and for countries that, you know, this is their prime source of revenue, that this, this is a huge, huge shock. Uh, I don't, I don't want to explain this too much. I think it's, it's quite self-explanatory. Anyway, uh, so, so yeah. can, can we go back? Because, I, I, I mean, I yeah. want to point out some things here is just... Okay, the leader here is Venezuela, just massive, massive drop. Because, I mean, we also have to remember, I think, and maybe you can put in context more based on your research, is these governments, right, really rely on on the revenue, uh, especially the poorer countries, 
uh, for the revenues to uh, as government income to help out the rest of society. What what what's what can be the impact in some of these countries for losing so much revenue? Yes, so exactly you're right, and I should I should maybe expand a little bit more. So there's there's a few factors here at play. One is it's the largest source of revenue for most of these countries. Uh, in some places, it's like 80-90% of revenues, uh, especially in in countries like the Saudi, Kuwait, UAE, not UAE, Kuwait, Iraq, uh, Azerbaijan. These are or like their budget revenues are basically oil. They don't tax anything else because they're like, we have oil revenues. So why, why bother with, with anything else? Um, in other places, it's also a huge source of employment. Uh, Pemex is the largest or one of the largest, uh, the national oil company in Mexico, PDVSA in Venezuela, again, an oil company is one of the massive, most important uh, uh, employers in the country. Uh, they, they're the main source of dollars. Uh, Venezuela, um, literally all of these countries, uh, really, it's the, it's, the, it's the most important source of foreign exchange. Uh, so if they want to import stuff, they need to sell oil to get the dollars to then buy anything imported. And these countries import a lot. They have very weak manufacturing sectors for most part, uh, and, and instead choose to trade oil for anything from televisions to cars to whatever. Um, so, so yeah. Um, and there, and there's, I, so, there's societies, the people are actually used to just whatever, having, having things taken care of without paying the taxes, essentially, because basically they, they have to pay less taxes because there's so much oil revenue. Exactly. And, and in some cases, it goes even to, to the level of, of giving uh, citizens like um, kind of basic income or guarantee, job guarantees and, and all sorts uh, in some of the richer places. Yeah. So... Exactly, uh, and I think, and I think what I wanted, what I went to unpack a little bit in a, in a recent uh, piece uh, I did. Uh, I'm going to skip over. It would explain that some of the projects are being delayed. Uh, is which countries, how this, how it's playing out this 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 huge loss in revenues, and if it pretty clearly feels that you can you can draw a line between countries between the countries that were relatively well prepared. Uh, for for this crisis versus the ones that are that are clearly heading to a sovereign debt crisis, and we looked at a, a few important indicators about how much oil savings they had accumulated in a fund, how much debt they had, how much how does their budget look like if you take out the petroleum revenues, how are investors w- willing to lend, at what rate are countries willing to lend to these countries? What cost does it cost? How much does it cost to produce their oil? If it's the main source, and if oil prices drop at thirty-five dollars, then you know it, how much revenues can they still take when oil prices are at thirty-five? And then, um, and then also how big their manufacturing and other sectors are. And in that, you know, uh, we we highlight countries like around the world. Actually, you know, you can contrast Venezuela, which goes in with zero saving, to Bolivia, which goes in with a decent amount of saving. Kazakhstan, again, decent size saving, very uh, much less saving in, in a country like Azerbaijan, actually, next door, or not next door, but uh, nearby. Uh, or if you compare Kuwait or, or other UAE or Saudis compared to Iran, the level of saving is just um, So some of these countries, like uh, maybe uh, have set up 
how do I say, like professional asset management or sovereign wealth funds would be another yes. term. Like they, they've had these these institutions to deal to, that were set up to deal with the re- revenue from the oil and then to distribute that. They, they've set this up a long time ago and have been working through these this type of arrangement. Exactly. So, yes. So sovereign wealth funds is, is the name of, of these uh, asset management facilities. They basically accumulated a lot, a large share of the proceeds in the last decade or 15 years or so. For some, it goes way, way back. And, and you know, uh, and what, what we see is that these countries can just dip in to that fund. They have savings and they can sell it off or they can borrow and, you know, they can, they can, they can easily outlast a year or two using, using what they have, uh, uh, they have saved. There's a few countries that we highlight, uh, mm-hmm. that like Malaysia and Trinidad and Tobago, where they do have the space to borrow, but unfortunately their oil sector is totally unviable at, at the at the current prices. So that's, uh, that, that's highlights some of these longer term challenges, uh, they're up against. Yeah. And what we see, like, for example, what we saw in countries that I think what illustrates the con- contrast uh, my uh, a friend in Algeria is writing about this if they're the only country everyone under COVID is trying to spend a little bit more right everyone's figuring out how can I how can I help businesses how can I help vulnerable households can I how can I spend more on health Algeria has to cut its budget by health wow they're cutting they're going in and thinking how can I cut the budget so that the, so that we don't go bankrupt and what is and, this? Can, wait, sorry, can I shift it a little bit, our conversation a yeah. little bit, and go towards governance? Because what does this say, and what what could happen in the area of transparency, accountability? Because in some of these countries, uh, there's a lot of allegations of corruption, and I'm sure <laughs> oil money, and it gets into some of your other research as well. Oil money doesn't necessarily go to the people. So if there's a huge budget shortfall. Certainly, maybe some of these governments actually and the people, the leaders want to stay in power. So is there an opportunity here for uh, for greater transparency and actually the money that comes from the oil going back to the people? Or, you know, it just seems like there's going to be less money to be stolen, but maybe more money could go back to the people instead. Uh, I wish it, I wish it was that simple. Uh, I'm, very, but... I'm very naive, just want to say. <laughs> I think, I mean, I think obviously there is, there is, uh, there is, there's, uh, there's not the kind of money going around that, that allows for, for uncontrolled spending. Uh, and it gets, it depends, it get depends a lot on the type of regime. So we saw Angola really doing a cleaning up round and, and, and firing some of the, some of the people in charge of, of quite scandalous, uh, a sovereign wealth fund that was, actually investing in, in very questionable assets and, and big allegations of corruption there. Same around the national oil company. So there, there's been a round of firing and, and hold, starting to hold people accountable around specific institutions, which were known to be hotbeds of, of, uh, of bad management and, and corrupt practices. Uh, again, we, we saw um, similar um, stuff. The other thing that happens is countries need bailouts. And when they need bailouts, like that's something we saw in Mozambique when they already got really badly burnt in 2014, actually. Um, they had borrowed hugely against, against some gas revenues. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and then 
suddenly went bankrupt on those loans and uh, already and then and then when when they asked for donor supports where they were like unless you open your books you're not getting any any help from us uh, and that, that's that's when a scandal about uh, alleged gunboat shopping was you know was uncovered and, uh, so so do you do you do you think that maybe some of these countries would rather handle the the crisis themselves uh, themselves rather than bringing in like the IMF or other international institutions that could lend them money. And, and I think a lot of them will, will, so that's, uh, yes, a lot of them will try to do it themselves and, and will, will be forced to, to cutting uh, some of the excess. I mean, even in Algeria, the first thing they said was the national oil company has to start, you know, needs to start the cutting itself on itself uh, and, and cut down uh, its costs. Um, uh, and, um, uh, so, so clearly, but I think, I think it's not just the money stolen. It's also the, the inefficiencies and the fuel subsidies is one of those areas where it's not, there's leakages, huge, huge leakages in the Nigerian system. Uh, I mean, oil gets, uh, their, their pipelines that, uh, uh, bunkering it's called when, when, you know, when they kind of steal oil from, from facilities, basically, to uh, illegal exports, uh, all sorts, all sorts of, of, of money just, just being wasted. And then there's, there's, there's opportunities there for sure uh, around reforms. It's not, 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 not just, you know, stopping on, on using private jets. But I mean, I'm, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that's not an important factor in, in some of these countries. Uh, but, but I think it, it has to come from, um, from, from um, other places as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, maybe we can move on to the long-term outlook. Uh, yeah. here, here we have the short-term kind of impact for these countries, and then long-term, how, how do you how do you see this? Change? Yeah, I think I think I mean especially talking uh, with you and a group of of uh, people very much focused on on uh, on the environmental aspect. You know, the sort of elephant in the room is is is, uh, is, is global warming, and then what we do about it really. And uh, there was a very important research paper uh, in which which tried to, you know, the whole setup and architecture around Paris is around what we need to do to cut our own uh, emissions. Emissions as in emissions coming out from, from production. But there's another side to that. What, you know, what we produce and what we consume is, is our tooth, our is one way of looking at the world. But the other way of looking at the world is, okay, if we do cut down production and consumption to meet Paris goals, then what does it do to the, the need for oil we have? And what they calculate is basically, if, we wanna, if we're serious about keeping warming below two degrees, then we need to also cut how much fuel we're getting out of the ground. It just logically follows that you can't, you can't reach the targets and still, still continue pumping oil at, at this speed. And what they say is basically two thirds of what we already discovered needs to stay under the ground. Uh, now, uh, and then the way they kind of lay it out is to say, well, there's different producers and some of this oil is, is super expensive and uh, some of this oil is relatively cheap. So what's looking likely is oil like the ones in you know, the Arctic or some of the oil that's uh, and the, the tar sands in Canada and other stuff are really, really expensive to take out of the ground. So if, we, if we're going to cut our supply by a lot, we're likely to only go for, for some of the cheaper uh, type of conventional uh, reserves. That's their way of looking at the world. 
the way I'd look at the world is much more, which are the countries? Which countries do I see on, on this graph? And what I would see on the graph is really to say, well, Saudis and, and the countries in the GCC, so that's Kuwait and um, Qatar and um, uh, UAE, uh, Iran, Iraq, actually also have, are very, very cheap producers. Uh, and they're much more likely to be continuing producing in 10 years, 15 years, uh, even if energy transition gets well underway. Whereas other producers, it's unlikely if we're, if we're anywhere serious about you know, bringing our fuel consumption down, it's, it's unlikely that their oil is going to remain competitive with, with, with these other producers. And so I did a little illustration. There's a, there's a, um, there's a repository of, of um, uh, an oil database called Rystad. And if you just look at how the world looks like if oil prices are at 60 versus if oil prices are at 30, you see whose, whose production is endangered. And what, what this slide kind of shows is Kuwait, Iraq, Saudis, their production lo doesn't look very different if it's oil price at 60 or if it's oil price at 30. And I just put it in 2030, around in a year. By then, you know, most of the existing fields will have stopped producing or diminished and new fields would have come on, online. So they, their strategy is pretty much the same in terms of production. But other countries, their production looks totally different. Uh, by 2030. So Mexico, or, 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 or which is an important producer, Guyana, a new producer that just starting to pump out oil, they might not pump out much at all if oil prices stay at 30. So you can see that some countries are much more likely to see what we call stranded, meaning their assets, they found oil, but that oil is staying under the ground. You know, if, if we're serious about cutting our oil consumption, heavily and, and try to transition and, and transition away from it, then, then these countries fuel is, is much more likely to stay under the ground. Yes. And, um, and basically it, it put, put it in a different way is just to say, if we're serious about the energy transition, then we're going to need much less oil. And then there's going to be an oversupply continuing, which means oil prices stay low. That's just but, the logic. I mean, then, then somehow we have to reduce demand for oil, which then is much more of a policy concept and policy yes. path. So so maybe now is the time for for politicians and anybody that can is to implement measures that can shift us away from oil. I mean, it's cheap, so if, if the price of these, um, there's two downsides, right? So the price uh, for any increase, uh, like maybe a carbon tax would be an idea that could be introduced now since the price is so low that consumers generally wouldn't notice it. Uh, but then that revenue can be used for renewable projects, so to say, or because now there's a big difference, right, between the cost of oil uh, and whatever it's fueling and a renewable resource that might be cost more because of the technology costs more. How do you how do you, how do you see this as being balanced in a low oil environment? I yeah, I tend to agree. I think I think the demand can't just won't just disappear by itself you need a lot of policy levers and i think there's you know uh, there's still big momentum around around making some of this change happening both at the eu level at the state level at least in the us and in many places um i've mentioned uh, the the reforms around fuel subsidies happening in a bunch of places so i'm i'm you know i'm i'm not optimistic about the fact that we're going to reach the paris agreement like 
just like that. But I'm, I'm optimistic that there's definitely movement in the direction of, of displacing fuel or wanting to displace fuel. And and I think there's, there's, there's a, and with the parity in prices and in so many places, I've, I see that there's a good chance for this to happen. Um, so in, in, in uh, it's kind of like an inflection point where the uh, price can implicitly, more like in a hidden way, be increased for oil. Uh, so that when the say that the economy recovers, then demand overall kind of shifts back to somewhat what it was in the past. Uh, the price is at least uh, in taxes or the, the the environmental. We could just frame it another way. The environmental costs are actually taken into account uh, in the price of oil, which then can hopefully drive greater shift away from oil. Exactly. Yes, I think that's 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 that, that's the right way to put it. But again, as I said, I I look at it mainly from if 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 we take this seriously, then what does it mean again? And you're back to the countries, and mm-hmm. and for me, the the logical leap from that is to say that, I mean, I'm not saying that oil prices won't rebound. There's there's some chance that they they'll go up. But as I explained in the beginning, I see a lot of pressures that are going to make sure that that they're going to. Tr- they're going to push oil prices towards not rebounding, not being able to rebound too much. Uh-huh. Uh, Which then actually uh, serves a geopolitical means, right? Keeps U.S. producers low because their cost of production is higher. So it favors the old school uh, oil producers over the new, newer uh, large scale ones. But then what, what happens for these newer producers in the emerging world, basically, or in the emerging economies that you have here? And and particularly, I'm thinking about your your idea around the pre pre-source curse. Yeah, thanks. Um, this means. Yeah. Uh, so, and this is this is research I've uh, I've been doing with uh, a friend at the bank, World Bank, uh, Jim Cost, and um, we've uh, and uh, another colleague, Tom Skirfield, and we what we've been worried about and been looking for for almost 10 years now, is a sample of new producing countries where, I, where I've been actively working. Uh, I started working in Sierra Leone in 2011 uh, in the Ministry of Finance, and that's when they found, they, then there were big headlines that Sierra Leone uh, found oil. And, then, and it happened everywhere. It happened in Ghana. It happened in, um, um, in, in Liberia. Uh, around there. It happened in, at the other side of the continent in East Africa, where Tanzania and Mozambique was discovering big gas deposits. And I've got some quotes here from the time. Uh, this is from the former president of Ghana. I love this one. Even without oil, we are doing well. With oil uh, as a shot in the arm, we're going to fly. Um, Ntwara, which is a small town, I'd say, well, a medium-sized city in Tanzania, will be the new Dubai. Uh, this is again a former president, uh, uh, and, and you know, it's not only politicians. And I've got another one uh, from Brazil, where, which also found huge deposit offshore. God, uh, God is Brazilian. God, yes, we have some strong evidence that God is Brazilian. Uh, um, so, uh, in Uganda, this is Sir Paul Colley, a mentor of mine, a professor, uh, who also at the time was, you know, traveling the region and explaining how. You know, the oil is, is, is around the corner for, for countries like Uganda, and they should prepare for how to spend that money wisely. And, you know, I, as, as I was working in some of these contexts, I was, I was a bit worried that there's a lot of optimism going around. You know, when I was in Sierra Leone, actually, I'm going to tell the anecdote, uh, 
the the IMF projected that the country is going to grow by 50 percent uh, within uh, within just a few well basically in a year time they're going to see a 50 percent increase in GDP and and the government revenues are going to double very quickly and all of these things on the back of of a few big investments oil but also iron ore actually to be fair frank and, and silly on this was mainly about iron ore at the time but in other places we've seen it more with oil uh, this big optimism around around how quickly that that money is going to materialize and what what this line of research did and uh, this, i've wrote, written more academic papers on this and more policy kind of stuff uh, and this is this is from a, a latest piece which looks at the timelines at the time of discovery, these these discoveries were a lot of them were around 2010, 2011, uh, at the height of the oil boom, when there was so much optimism. And you know, they initially forecasted that you know within three years, five years, whatever, we're going to see the oil revenues. And and actually, the timelines just keep slipping. They just keep slipping, and there's no oil coming out of Uganda at all. They're still this negotiating with Total. I was there a few months ago. And this was before the oil crash. They were they were they were still sort of um, debating on where, where a pipeline might go. Big debates around land use and all that. Uh, it's very difficult context and very hard very hard to execute such projects. Uh, and basically, what what the map shows is all of these projects are, are way beyond beyond timeline already. And this we finished this research. It's coming out with the bank and hopefully very very soon. But we basically finished it a few a month before COVID, and now we can just sort of update everything because the timelines have slipped again. But And, I, and I'm very doubtful about how many of these projects are actually going to even come out. And and so much of the planning has been, oh, you know, whatever, Sao Tome or even Tanzania, Uganda, they should set up an oil fund to start saving that oil money. But these countries might not see any oil money, really. So that's that's sort of the pre-source curse. And I, we label this, uh, it's a Mozambican journalist who actually came up with the term. It's in contrast to the resource curse, which is which is the problems that resource-rich countries face. The pre-source curse is what countries that hope to become resource-rich kind of face. And so that's, that's their struggle that I've, that I've been writing about. But what what happens? I, what I liked about this um, area of the pre-source curse is really the governance and the pr- planned projected economic growth of the country not living up to the expectations. Can you can you describe that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So what the research uh, paper did is to look at IMF forecasts, and we looked at IMF forecasts uh, just after oil discoveries. And what we saw is there's a huge jump in forecasted growth. But what we see is actually the forecast does t- tend to match these, the, uh, these forecasted growth in countries that are um, uh, what are called high quality institutional countries or good governance countries, if you want to call them that way. Uh-huh. So that would be the line in the middle, but uh, the lines in the middle. So the forecast and the actual are pretty close. But in countries with weaker institutions, we see the forecast going up and the actual actually somewhat going down so this this sort of and then overall what we see is this sort of systematic shortfall after oil discoveries between what's forecasted and what's actually happening and that's concentrated in the countries with some of these weaker institutions and you know we kind of implicitly well we discuss how this is probably related to, to the factors around governance and the problems that you know this exuberance creates and how these countries might not be ready to sort of manage and, and execute on such projects and, and so let's take apart this slide a little bit. Sorry, uh, this one. Uh, country, countries, and for the example of the third graph, countries with weaker institutions. 
So you, what, what kind of data is behind this graph with the forecasted yeah. kind of uh, not Sorry, just transparency, but then the actual, how, how do you measure that? Uh -huh. Oh, okay. So um, getting into the weeds here. Uh, yeah. So um, we just divided a sample when I mean, we tried a few different samples, but this is polity, which is one of the these, these classical measures of polity institutions that political scientists love to use. So we, we just took apart the countries that are strong institutions and weak institutions, which sort of follows on, on some of the literature. A lot of it is like executive checks on balances, checks on executives and then constraints on executive kind of measures. Uh, I'm not really an expert on, on, on that subject, but basically we just kind of divide the sample of countries into two and look at immediately what happens so the IMF does five-year forecasts, and so we can look, okay, here's an oil discovery in 2012. Let's look, well, whatever, 1999, whatever. And then let's look at the forecast just after. What did they say in the next five years going to look like? What does the actual reality look like? And did that kind of systematic analysis. And mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. so, uh, so just even the prospect that they're going to have oil revenue uh, begins to shift things in the government and with society, um, and somehow, somehow, money or uh, maybe more viable economic activity is pushed aside uh, under the under what actually we were talking about before. With there was there will be uh, a lot of extra revenue come into the state from these oil fines. Yeah. So our research by others have looked at how countries might be decreasing how much they tax. That's a, other things that, that might be one way or borrowing. One thing that I particularly zoomed in on is, is national oil companies as well. Uh, a bunch of these countries have set up very ambitious plans to make that oil sector quite national, as in they set up a national oil company to, to, to be in charge or, or do more on the sector. So that, that kind of leads a bit, that's kind of segue into, um, into to the next question. So that, that might be a route uh, that could be relatively expensive. Uh, Ghana's national company is, re is quite ambitious, really, in terms of, of, uh, of wanting to, to be a big player. And, you know, Ghana's oil sector has least started, and there's, there's definitely some fields being developed, but it's, it's questionable whether the, country, the company should be investing that much and should be keeping really so much of those revenues to invest it back into the sector on more and more ambitious projects, more exploration gas projects, this and that. Um, so that's that's one way. There's there's also been um, borrowing drives, really. So Mozambique is the classic example of that. You know, they had the gas fine, they went to investors and said, okay, we, we, have, we, we have that gas money coming, lend us a ton of money, we're going to buy warships and stuff. And, and then the gas project got delayed and suddenly they were like, oops, we can't really pay back. And so they had a debt crisis straight uh, ahead. So even before ago. they, they used projected revenues to go and borrow money. Uh, yeah, and then it just screws yeah. everything up. Exactly. Uh, so that's that's another way you can shoot yourself. So, so they're getting the oil and gas, we'll just say they're getting the oil and gas money far in advance of actual any oil and gas money. Yes, it's the count your chicken before they hatch. Uh, I think uh -huh. it's the, it's the American which, which And if you're a political leader, actually may make sense because you can start giving your voters and your citizens these these gifts in a sense right they can start benefiting even earlier why wait for the oil extraction gas physical extraction to make money and to spend the money when you could actually do it 10 years ahead of time 
Exactly. And I think, you know, the Ghana, Ghana has been one classical example of, of spending really going through the roof straight after the oil discovery and then big raises in, in civil servant salaries and all across the board and, and very lavish uh, spending, which meant that the country, again, a few years in was in 20, I think it was 15, they had to go to the IMF for, for a loan because they just couldn't sustain sort of wage bills and, and, and increases that they, they, they executed. Uh, and it's also, they are under pressure. I mean, they're responding I mean, uh, to, to I mean, Ghana's democracy and voters were expecting uh, some, some, of, uh, some of these kind of... Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So yeah. even, because I, I just know from, from Poland, uh, studying the shale gas revolution, that wasn't a revolution. <laughs> there was just... Uh, a huge amount of hype, right? In the press, in even society and NGOs, there was everything focused on, hey, we can look at the United States and see how the shale gas revolution changed everything there. And we we also have shale gas, or we have shale rocks, shale formations with gas in it. And we will, we are going to do something similar. So the, the money will come, or at least in that case of Poland, the self-sufficiency in gas uh, will come. And for, let's say, two or three years, this was the strong narrative and people were not, not fight. They didn't get to the point of fighting over the money, but certainly fighting over the, the environmental conditions that this would happen under. Uh, so I, I know from that example, just the idea that th- it's there, even if nothing's proven like how to get it out of the ground yet uh, can lead to a lot of discussion between society and politicians and making sure things are either done right or not done right but uh, so I can see if it's it's if they they're finding oil in a country that there's also this expectation that that now let's start to benefit it benefit from it even before the money comes in exactly and, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the, the, the impact overall, sorry, I just want to move us along then. The impact overall has been fairly negative in, in the terms for both society and we could say the economic transparency, economic development in, in these developing countries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, shall we... Yeah, I just to wanted hear? to maybe, maybe take some questions from the students or anyone that has found our, our link. So maybe I can turn to the audience now and ask them for questions. Let's turn, let's turn the tables. I didn't give warning about this ahead of time. But if you have any questions for David, uh, please ask. This is your opportunity. Maybe I have one question. Okay, Vavra, thank you. Firstly, thanks for presentation because my focus is mostly on renewables and it was, this was a whole new world for me to be honest and it's super interesting to see how also some challenges matches in different technologies which is super interesting to to find out from your presentation but my question is a bit maybe personal and professional in the same way like what would be your focus in 10 years time like do you think about it i mean taking all this what you said into perspective and also like taking this elephant in the room, which we talked about and the transition and all this greening of energy we were talking about. So can you maybe, yeah, say like what you expect at least by 2030 in, in the field of oil? Uh, Thanks, a very um, tough question, but I think I can, I'm going to try to unpack in two ways. First, I think that the sector 
will be here in 10 years. It's not, it's not going to vanish. Uh, it's going to take a different form and shape. And, uh, and, and to me, it's unclear what that shape is. Uh, it could be an, an oil sector that's more modest in its ambition, cleaner in its ways. And, you know, and there's, there might be, there are some areas like aviation and others where it might, it, it'll have a place, uh, and it could do such things in a transparent way, in a very well-taxed way, con- you know, in making sure that the emissions uh, are, are are kept under un- under lid uh, as much as possible. So that, and in in making sure that we we have such an oil sector rather than the worst kind of oil sector that we know, uh, contributing very little to the societies where it's produced, not not respecting any sort of environmental standard, transparency standard, all that. I think is a, is a risk that we, we should take seriously and we shouldn't just be like, okay, uh, let's not go anywhere near anything that's oil. Uh, the, the, my other part is as, a, as an economist working on public finance, really, I'm a macroeconomist by training. I care about how the environment generally is impacting on countries' development strategies. And, and I see that what oil was for me in 20 oil and mining really because I work quite a bit on mining as well uh, was 10 years ago in terms of this is this is a big shock to the countries I see that the climate shocks are as, at least as severe in, in many places and so thinking about all the kind of natural shocks whether it's an oil discovery or whether it's a, it, it's a, a disastrous environmental uh, environmental disasters uh, adapting to to new climates all of these things are sort of are much more connected than I initially thought. Uh, for me, you know, these these societies uh, need need to constantly adapt uh, and and have 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 found it very difficult to adapt to previous changes already. Um, so so these these issues continue to fascinate me. Uh, my my new research that I'm, um, I'm I'm doing right now right now is actually focused on 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 studying what makes what what makes for oil fields to be developed. How how is whether state participation hinders or helps uh, hinders or helps uh, oil extraction? Whether whether we might see you know sort of and very not if if governments there's a lot of calls for example in the U.S. for the government to take over oil. It's it's nearly bankrupt. Why not rather than bailing them out? Why not just take it over? And uh, that's that's been a popular call out there. And I, you know, and I've been studying national companies as well. And I wonder, okay, would a state-run industry serve our purposes more or less uh, in in doing this energy transition? So still working on energy transition, but with a much stronger climate focus and, and less just centered on 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 how the money is being spent, which was more what I was focused on traditionally. That's, but I wouldn't say I see as far as 2030. I'd say this is my next years hopefully 2013 i don't know maybe start retiring early with all the pandemic despite a wooden cabin <laughs> yes <laughs> plan ahead uh, more more questions okay uh i i have i have one or two more questions questions actually one uh is really um up for students so you you mentioned that you're a macro economist and that's what you trained as or you studied uh, how does that and why why are you interested in you said mining oil why why these fossil fuels what's what's so interesting about it for you I think there's there's, uh, there's the element of, of 
engineering and industrialization and all of these things are so much linked to to the material world around us and i i'm really interested in in this in this very first phase of of, of what what constitutes development and and is to have you know if you like read i'm i'm fascinated by history really and and how the industrial revolution revolution all started with coal and then how how countries that used to be very agricultural in nature suddenly transformed and became became these massive powerhouses and and for me right well for, for me when i started this looked like oil is, is this 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 is this is this kind of new coal it wasn't new at all i mean but whatever is is it and it, it seemed like a big escalated that suddenly a lot of these poor countries have found you know it was it was these uh it was all it is it, an a time of optimism and that was was seen as one of the big escalators that might make development happen in, in, in sub-saharan africa where I, where my work is so much focused so it was not paying attention to oil would have been sort of like completely sort of naive to 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 one of the big hopes and you know i came out quite disillusioned because it ultimately i found that this oil didn't work out as such an escalator for, for so much of these impoverished countries than that i initially hoped so actually, uh, the lack of oil may, may actually be good for a country. Yeah. Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And it depends on how it's managed and, and the trans, uh, transparency around it. Okay, David, I, I want to thank you uh, for, for joining us today. This is, uh, I really enjoyed both learning about the resource curse, but also the volatility uh, in developing countries for the oil markets and the impact that oil does have on governance and just the prospect of, of govern, uh, prospect of oil for a country, how it impacts. So thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank everyone else for joining our EPRG Jean Monnet event today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn 